0: Just because we did something a hundred years ago, it doesn't mean that that is valid anymore today.
1: You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 43 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited for you to hear from today's guest, Ellie Hansen. Ellie and I cover a lot of ground in our conversation today. We're going to hear about her own personal story and the dogs in her life and where they have inspired her. And then we're going to talk some about history and science and technology and lawmaking. And we're going to leave you with some really exciting and relatively easy action steps that you can take in your life today. Almost all of them you can do right from your phone to truly make a difference to end the use of dogs for research animals in laboratory testing in America. (coughs) This episode is brought to you by the Hugs and Belly Rubs Dog Health Journal. One of the most stressful times for me as a dog mom has been when my dogs have been sick. I've had dogs with cancer, with allergies, with mystery illnesses that we haven't been able to get a diagnosis for yet. With the Dog Health Journal, you can schedule your dog's daily meals, medications, supplements, track their appetite, water intake, and even poops. You can record their daily activities and note any changes in their physical appearance, such as lumps and bumps, or their routine. Since our dogs can't talk, it's our job as pet parents to listen to what they're telling us through their behavior and body language. With the Dog Health Journal, you can keep all the information you need to let your veterinarian know all in one place. With the Dog Health Journal bundle, you get your daily pages, you get your vet visit pages, you get a free 23 page ebook of the 12 changes in your dog to never ignore, and you also get tons of dog mom life hacks and general tips for keeping your dog as healthy as possible. So make sure you check the link in the show notes to hugsandbellyrubs.com for the Dog Health Journal. Your dog and your vet will thank you. <coughs> So you might remember, it was not all that long ago, we talked to author Kristen von Kreisler on the podcast, and one of the things that was a part of Kristen's story was that she and her family had found a rescued laboratory beagle named Bee, and I talked to Kristen extensively in our conversation about Bee, and that was really the first time that I was aware of laboratory testing being done on dogs. I don't know where I've been. I have not been hiding under a rock. I love to read anything about dogs. I follow all kinds of organizations and companies about dogs and dog news and dog health news and dog rescue news. And for most of the last 20 years, I've spent a ton of time reading and learning about dogs in our world. And yet I was not aware of the fact that dogs are being used in research laboratory testing every day in America. In fact, Ellie's going to tell us that there is an estimated 55,000 dogs right now being used in research labs across America, having experiments done on them. And I was really upset by this. And, And what was really interesting just about the timing of all of this is I had just found out a couple months ago, it was in December, about Kristen and her book about B, and I was feeling really drawn to learning more about this, to talking about this, to using the podcast as a vehicle to spread the knowledge and information about this, because if it wasn't on my radar, who else didn't know about this? And it was such a coincidence if you believe in the universe, if you believe in coincidences and fate and whatever those things are. The day I interviewed Kristen was back in January. One hour after I finished my interview with Kristen, I got an email from Ellie about this book that she wrote that we're going to talk about today. And I thought, what are the odds of that? I just got done talking to somebody about laboratory beagles. And that same day, I get another email from somebody who's like, would you be willing to talk about research laboratory beagles? And you're actually going to hear in another few more weeks that there's another guest that we're going to be talking to who has a connection to this issue. And none of these guests know each other. They don't have any connection to each other, but they're all really passionate about spreading awareness about the topic of dogs being used in research labs across America. And I'm really excited for you to hear from Ellie. One of the other things that I just thought was an interesting coincidence for all my Baltimore friends, for all my Maryland friends... There are so many ties to Baltimore and to Maryland in Ellie's book and around this topic of laboratory research beagles that it was really strange to me that it just kept popping up throughout the book. There's even a picture of Maryland's Governor Hogan in the book. And uh, I just thought that that was a really funny thing too. Again, I'm just feeling really drawn to speaking about this and and to helping to spread the word. And I think you're just really going to love Ellie. Ellie Hansen is an award-winning writer and founder and CEO of Lovable Pets, Inc., a holistic pet supply company located in Billings, Montana. She is also a humane policy volunteer for the Humane Society of the United States and the author of Laboratory Dogs Rescued from Test Subjects to Beloved Companions. Now let's get started with Ellie Hansen. So we are here today with Ellie Hansen. Hi, Ellie. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I have so much I want to talk to you about, and I'm so excited to talk to you, but I always like to start by asking about your childhood experiences with animals. I did not grow up with dogs or with any pets, and and it kind of came to me later in life, so I'm always interested to know, did you grow up with animals, with dogs? Have you always been an animal lover?
0: I think I've always been an animal lover. I remember summers, my cousin and I would rescue hurt birds that flew into the window and tried to rehabilitate them. And yeah, I believe I've always loved animals, but I didn't grow up with animals. Oh, okay. I, I never did have a dog or a cat. I think I wanted one, but it just wasn't part of what my family did. And so I honestly didn't get my first dog till I was 30.
1: Oh, okay. I was 25.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so what made you uh, decide to adopt a dog at 30? Well, he was actually, looking back, I would never do this again. He was not adopted. I mean, I was such a new, the world of dogs was so new to me. I didn't know anything about, don't buy from puppy mills and adopt, don't shop. I uh, didn't know any of that. So I bought my first dog. He was a great dog though. His name was Ty and he he changed my life for sure. He's no longer with us, but yeah. Yeah, those first dogs, they're really special. (laughs) They really are. And so when you were 30, what did your life look like? I was still um, living, I live in Montana now, but at that time I was living in New Jersey and I was working at a university and I was a grant writer. And my commute every day was... You know, like with traffic, two hours each way, just bumper to bumper traffic, and I, um, I didn't like that at all. And then I went through a divorce at that around that time, and so getting a divorce kind of makes you look at your life and your priorities just a little bit differently. And so my life looked at that time. I said, "Ty, we need to make some changes," and I don't think I want do this anymore for the rest of my life traffic this congestion I just you know I need to get out of here is what I was feeling and so um, I took a vacation to Montana with my sister and Montana's like wide open spaces you know it's like kind of like the wild west out here a lot of in a lot of places and I'm like I got back home and I was sitting in a traffic jam and uh, I remember calling my sister on on her cell. And she was sitting in that same traffic jam coming home from work that day. And I'm like, do you want to move to Montana? And she said, yes. And so it was as easy as that within, within three months, we were uh, packed up and had it out West. Oh, wow. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I almost don't want my husband to
0: hear this because I don't want him to get any ideas.
1: <laughs> and so what did you do for work when you first got to Montana?
0: Well, I knew I didn't want to work in an office office again. Um, and I knew I wanted to work with animals because what my little, what my little dog Ty had taught me, it had brought, he'd brought something out in me that was always in there. And that was a very strong love for animals. And so I worked as a ranch hand at a horse ranch for a whole year.
1: Oh, wow. That's a big change.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mucked stalls and I rode the horses and I took care of the horses. And honestly, it was like the best healing, soul-searching job I could have got.
1: Had you ever ridden horses
0: before that? Yeah, yeah, I'd taken horseback riding lessons, yeah.
1: I rode horses when I was about 12 years old, and sometimes I'd like to try it again, but it's a much harder fall now if something happens. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know that you are now the founder and CEO of Lovable Pets. And so how did you get that idea?
0: Well, that came from my little dog, Ty, as well. Back in New Jersey, I used to take him to this little, like a dog boutique bakery, and I'd get him little special treats and little toys and little outfits. And when I moved here, there was nothing like that. And so I did a ton of soul searching again. I'm like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? It has to be something with animals. So, not anywhere good with blood and needles. So, it wasn't going to be a veterinarian or anything related to medical. So one day it just popped into my head, we'll open up a dog bakery. And this we did. How long of a process did that take? Well, I didn't have a ton of money. And so I got a small business loan and we, I found a place to, space to rent. And we started out very small. So all we had was like a bakery case, but we filled it with all these really special dog treats. And people came. But after the first year and a half, um, the business was failing. And I didn't know anything about running a business. And that's when my husband came on. And he had a degree in business, finance. And so he helped me with the financials. And I actually had a, a banker, I brought him my financials, like the, the president of a bank. He's like took one look at the financials and said you should just quit now cut your losses oh my gosh <laughs> and i always think what if i'd actually listened to him
1: yeah you know because
0: i went home crying saying i am not going to quit you know i will refuse to quit and i didn't quit and thank god because yeah we're celebrating 15 years in business oh that's amazing this year yeah and so what does the business look like now we have Two stores now, one on each opposite side of the town, and we have 16 employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have two full-service grooming salons, and we have two uh, self-serve dog washes. And then it was just filled with toys, natural foods, herbs, pretty much everything that's holistic, like holistic and natural for dogs and cats. I would totally be
1: shopping there if I lived in Montana. <laughs> Have you always been into like the more holistic side of
0: things? Um, I wouldn't say so. I would. I think that some of the health issues I would I had, I had migraines pretty bad, and I think that got me looking into more natural things to help because the you know the pain relievers and drugs weren't working for me or had bad side effects, and so. That's kind of how I got interested it. You know, the more you start researching things, the more you're like, oh, that makes sense. Or I'm going to try that. So it's just kind of came on.
1: Yeah, it's been a journey for me also. And and my own sort of personal health journey has also sort of been very like intertwined with my dogs and what's going on in their health. And I'm learning about me and then I can help them and I learn about them and then it helps me. It's been very intertwined. I can relate to that. And so I'm here to talk to you today about a book that you wrote. And I know that the story of how you came to write this book starts off with something really upsetting that happened. So I think it was around early 2014 that you were just minding your own business on Facebook one morning. Is that correct? That's
0: correct. I um I have at that time I had Ty and I had a Beagle named Max. And so I loved beagles as a breed very much. And I was just on Facebook one morning and I had no idea about any of this when I saw this video. This video came up on my screen. It was an undercover video by, I think it was by the Humane Society. And it, it was a picture of a beagle on like a table in a research lab with people in like lab coats and they basically just euthanized him and like tossed him onto this cart and just wheeled him away and it was like what's happening what's happening and then it went into say like this was a dog in a research lab being used for research and yeah that just <laughs> that moment changed my life i
1: can imagine i can imagine and so what did you decide to do about it cuz I think a lot of people probably saw that video, but you really did something about it.
0: Yes. It, it like hit me so hard. Like, oh, I have to do something about this. Like, this is what I'm on this earth to do. And so instead of like, I was sitting there, I was like crying. My husband came running into the room. He's like, what's wrong? And he's like, you know, instead of sitting there crying for an hour, like, maybe there's something you can do to help. And so I'm like, you know what, that is absolutely right. And so I started, I started researching and I found all these organizations. And I just started to educate myself on why this is happening and what's happening. I also didn't really know much about this. I
1: mean, this was not something that was on my radar at all until just a couple months ago. And I had been contacted by an author uh, about her book, which didn't have anything to do with this. But when I went back and was kind of reading her story, I found that she had had a, a rescued laboratory beagle. And that was the first time I kind of had any idea about this. And then it was very coincidental that the exact same day I interviewed her, you contacted me. And I felt like, okay, I really need to, to spread the word about this. And so I thank you for sharing the story, because I'm sure that it's hard to talk about. <laughs> I know that you ended up then deciding to adopt a rescued laboratory beagle. So how did you find him?
0: Yeah, I um, one of the things that I decided to do was to adopt after seeing that video. And I signed up, like I submitted an application to Beagle Freedom Project, but they're located in California. And so they typically adopt out beagles that are around that area. So you kind of have to live in the state where you adopt the dog from typically. So, it was just coincidence. I had a customer walk into our store, Lovable Pets, one day with a beagle. And when I when I asked about their beagle, they said, "Oh yeah, I got this beagle was a former research laboratory dog and I got him from Kindness Ranch Animal Sanctuary which is in Hartville, Wyoming, which is driving distance from where I lived." So, I immediately put in an application for my own beagle. That's Marty, right? That's Marty. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I'm just curious, you know, what your experience was like. I know you wrote in the book that you, you know, sometimes we hear about
0: like, oh, the dog chose us, but you said, no, no, I I chose Marty. That's true. Um, I just remember sitting. uh, So Kindness Ranch Animal Sanctuary is an amazing one in a like, there isn't any place like it in this whole country, honestly. It's a 1,000-acre ranch in the town of Hartville, Wyoming. Hartville, Wyoming is, I don't wouldn't even call it a town. I think maybe 30 people live there. It's mostly just open space. But then there's a 1,000-acre ranch that's dedicated to research animals. The dogs that are rescued from research labs, they live in, like, Uh, homes. They're like yurts that are set up. So they're set up to be like a home environment and they have 24 hour caretakers so that the dogs can learn how to live in a house with the TV on and a couch and a, I don't know, a blender, all these things that they've never seen or heard before. And so I remember sitting on the ground in one of the yurts and all the beagles that I had to choose from because I could pick, you know, there are a bunch of beagles, maybe, I don't know, eight running around, my husband and I, and some of them were friendly and brave. And there was one beagle, Marty, who was terrified and would not come anywhere near me at all. He just had a look of terror on his face. And he was kind of thin and he'd been there. He'd been at the ranch quite a while, you know, maybe because nobody wanted a skittish dog to adopt. Maybe, maybe the friendly ones got adopted first. I don't know. But I said to my husband, I said, I think that's the one that we need to take. I think he really needs needs us. us."
1: (laughs) I feel like that would, I would do do the same thing. (laughs) Like, what's the worst one? Like, that's yeah. one coming with me. Like, and so, what was it like bringing him home? I mean, how how long did it take you know, for him to be able to trust you and you know start to integrate? And is that
0: stressful? Oh yeah, we had our whole our whole lives had to revolve around Morty, and not everybody's willing to do that. That's what's kind of unique about adopting a research dog. A former research dog, especially one with PTSD, I will call it, like what Marty had, because he'd been in the lab for six years, which is quite a long time.
1: Yeah,
0: like I'll say that um, we have a dog named Nino,
1: and we know that animal control in Baltimore pulled him out of a bad situation. Yeah, and when we first met him, he was very shut down. I mean, didn't react to anything, and I mean, it took six weeks maybe before we really started to see like his silly, goofy, like a tank personality, you know, kind of start to come through. Um, And I mean, he would just pancake and hit the ground at every noise, the furnace coming on, the dishwasher coming on, you know, any kind of, of strange noise, uh, you know, he would just pancake. And, And we had never, experienced a dog like that before. So that's the only sort of like frame of reference I would have for, you know, for for what you must have been experiencing with Marty.
0: Yeah, and for Marty, it was even more than like the noises around the house. It was he was terrified of people. So for like the first month, my husband and I couldn't look at him with our eyes. The minute wow. we would look at him, Then he would go start to have a breakdown. So we literally would walk backwards when we were around him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that went away after a month, you know. And when he started to trust, he started, everything started to fall into place very quickly. It's like, oh, I could do this. Oh, I could do this. You know, it was pretty quick from there. But it was like the first couple months that were, he had to learn that people weren't coming to do bad things to him. Right. Yeah. How did he do with other animals? Loves other dogs. Yeah. Loves all other animals.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so
0: what's Marty's life like now? Oh, he's just like a, just a regular dog, honestly. You know, he, I think he will always have some residual PTSD. I'll just say it's. I would categorize him as a special needs dog, still, in terms of he has to have things just so for him to feel safe. But you wouldn't really see it unless something triggered him. And we know those triggers. So we we see some of that even with
1: with nino we always say that you know we've never seen a dog with ocd before um but he you know he has to have things in a certain way and if yeah. if something in his in the environment is different than usual like it's very upsetting for him and normally he's kind of a little brave about it and kind of alerts you by barking or something and i mean it could be something like the wind knocked over a bucket in our next door neighbor's yard. (laughs) And he is very concerned about this and barking at the (laughs) fence, you know, I mean, it's, it's that, um, like that level of, of, you know, things that he pays attention to. (laughs) And so you have also
0: rescued a second beagle now also, right? Yeah. The intention was never to have four dogs, (laughs) but I got a call from kindness ranch. They had another beagle. He's a mix A big old mix that was developing some poor behaviors and needed to go into a foster home right away. And so I talked to my husband, and he was only supposed to be a foster, (laughs) but um, he actually came from a laboratory on the east coast, and I'm we're honestly not sure what he was used for. Some type of a human food product testing or something that we were told, but his whole back was just covered with sores and he needed some really good nutrition and healing. Wow! And so I just, I I told my husband, I said, you know, with our natural food store and all this, I, like, I couldn't give him up to somebody who wouldn't do this for him. Like we're going to do for him. Right. So we kept him. Right. He was in the la- He was in a laboratory for eight and a half years. Wow! So he was already a senior by the time he got out. And so he—he's um, a special boy, but he's—he's <laughs> he's an incredible, an incredible dog. He's almost sixteen. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so I know that
1: you have even started working with the Humane Society of the United States around this issue. So what does that look like for you?
0: I started working for the Humane Society of the United States as a volunteer back then, and we were called district leaders. And I was invited by the Montana state director to be a district leader for Billings, Montana. And that was right before I adopted Marty. So back in 2014, I would do tabling events and I would like to, you know, tabling events for um, to end animal testing. And I educate people on purchasing cruelty-free products. And I would do a lot of calls to our politicians. I still do that. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: And so I have your book here with me. It's called Laboratory Dogs Rescued from Test Subjects to Beloved Companions. And I have this quote that I, I thought really summarized the book perfectly. It says, globally, hundreds of thousands of laboratory dogs have no identity other than as a numbered research tool and remain hidden away in undisclosed locations away from public view. And this book is an effort to change that. And I just thought that was so so perfect. So how did this book come about? Was this something
0: that was your idea? Were you approached by somebody else? Like, what is the process like? It was another thing that kind of uh, was meant to be kind of hits kind of hit me out of the blue, and I'm like, oh, that's what I gotta do. I was actually on Facebook again <laughs> and um, I was scrolling through some of the groups I was a part of, and one of them was called Dog Writers. Dog Writers Association or something? And, oh, yes. I'm familiar. Okay. okay. So they, were, they had a call for book proposals for their Dogs in Our World series. So they were looking for authors to write a book. And so I'm like, what do I have to lose? I'm going to write about laboratory dogs because I have two of my own. And I am really interested in learning more. And so I'm just going to. So I put together a book proposal. Uh, first, it was just a letter, and they accepted it, and they were interested in hearing more. And then a book proposal, and it kind of all went from there. They chose my book out of all the book proposals that came in. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> It was cool. And I think it was because it's an issue that people really care about, and they knew people would want to learn more about.
1: Yeah what was that process like for you? I know you have a, a quote in the book about thanking your husband for letting you take over the kitchen table. <laughs> and <laughs> I always thank my husband for letting me take over the dining room table with high <laughs> <dance preparations. laughs> So I understand that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, probably about six months, I was collecting all the scientific papers about why dogs are used, why dogs may not be the best models for humans. And the publishing company that I was writing for, McFarland, they, this was an academic book. So they really required a ton of like endnotes and a bibliography. And so I had to make it very robust. And also it was very important for me for this book to be credible. So if somebody was reading it, they wouldn't be like, oh, she's just a crazy dog lady who's, you know, no, like I this is all based on facts. This is real. Did that take an emotional toll on you? It absolutely did. Um especially especially the early part of the research cuz dogs have been used all through the 1800s, since the 1800s. And in the 1800s they didn't have They didn't have anesthesia. I won't go into any more than that. Um, But dogs were used. Thousands and thousands of dogs were used in horrible experiments without anesthesia. And I had to look at pictures and read the stories. And yeah, I'd sit at the computer and just cry. And then I'd be like, take a deep breath and just, you know, keep going. It happened. It's in the past. We don't have to go back and do that again. <laughs> so, and, and we have to talk about it and to try to change it now. Yeah, we do. Yeah,
1: I can imagine. <laughs> now you speak with some some really you know amazing experts. You know doctors, scientists, uh, advocates. Were these people that you already had, you know, some relationship with through the work that you've done, or, or were those people that
0: you were were like, "Hi, I'm Ellie." <laughs> it was more, "Hi, I'm Ellie." Uh, <laughs> I had no idea who these people were, and the unbelievable part of this of putting this book together was that the doctor that wrote the forward for the book, Doctor Cat- Catherine Herman, I just emailed her. It was a Sunday afternoon. I emailed her. I said. I had read, basically, I had read some of her research papers. That's how I came across her name. One afternoon, I just sent her an email. Hey, I'm writing this book. I would really love to interview some people in the field of biomedical, you know, who would have some knowledge on, on dog use. Would you be willing to talk to me? And not only did she talk to me, but she just was very excited. She got back to me within an hour. And she just started giving me all these names. You need to talk to so-and-so and and you talk to so-and-so. And And she helped me find all the people I needed to find to talk to. It was unbelievable. And then all those other people got back to me immediately and were more than eager to talk to me. You know, That's amazing. It was amazing. It was just like all the pieces fell together and fell together for a reason.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I saw that uh, Dr. Herman, she actually has a connection with Johns Hopkins University, which again is right here in Baltimore. That's that's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) There were so many different connections to (laughs) Baltimore and to to Maryland and, and, and the book and to this issue. And it just kept standing out to me. So I like how you divided the book up. You have it kind of divided into three parts and you talk about sort of the, the past, present, and future of dogs being used in science. And then you talk about the rescuing process and the organizations that are, are doing the rescue. And then my favorite section is all of the rescue stories, where it's stories of rescue rehabilitation and second chances. And you're, you're interviewing the owners and hearing about their experiences and Uh, and uh, that was my favorite part.
0: (laughs) That was my favorite part too.
1: (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I learned so much even going into the history and I wanted to kind of talk about that some, because I guess I always think it's important to understand how we got to where we are now and, you know, and to look at at the history and sort of the politics and, and, you know, the, the things that have gotten us to where we are now. And so- I had heard the term vivisection before, but I honestly don't know if I could have given you like the world's best definition of it. Um, And so vivisection is animal experimentation and and can include the use of animals for research, testing, and education. And so therefore, anti-vivisection is those who are opposed to experimenting on living animals, especially when causing pain or distress to those animals. And so I learned that the history of vivisection goes all the way back to 300 BC, into the ancient Greeks. And you know, you you point out like there, there's a reminder that you know throughout history dogs weren't necessarily seen as companion animals like like they are today. And and one thing I also thought was really interesting was. St. Thomas Aquinas, which I guess I was realizing he probably wasn't a saint when he was living, but right. <laughs> I learned of him as a saint. And uh, and this was, you know, about 800 years ago that he was one of the first to condemn cruelty to animals because it can lead humans to developed feelings and actions of cruelty towards other humans. And I thought, yes, history has proven this true.
0: So many years ago. Yeah, so many yeah, years 800 ago. 800 years ago, yeah. We... we- made that connection. Yeah. And it is true today. Yeah.
1: That was like fascinating to me. Yeah, And then, you know, we kind of come into the, the names, some of the names that you recognize, right? Like from, from a uh, science class of like Louis Pasteur and of course Pavlov. Um, and that, that these were people who were experimenting, you know, on animals. And we sort of look at them as these lauded scientists and and stuff and it's like well there's a little you know bit of a footnote here too like that, you know these people were experimenting on animals
0: yeah i mean i remember learning about pavlov too and they definitely didn't go into any details on how he did his research with that. right
1: <laughs> right because that
0: would be traumatizing for a school child <laughs> to <Yeah>. read <laughs> So. Yeah,
1: that was a, uh, oh, yeah, because we hear, we hear that all the time. It's used in, like, pop culture references. like And, and yeah, we're, we're not talking about that part of it. And I, I, one of the things that gave me a small chuckle was that there was this French physiologist whose wife divorced him due to his treatment of animals, and she went on to join the anti-vivisection movement. And I just was kind of like, you go, girl. <laughs> I had to add that. I was like you. I'm like, I have to add this. And so, you know, you talk about how through the history of, of vivisectionists, that they are justifying their use of animals, that it's a sacrifice for the greater good of mankind, and that it's more moral to use animals in experimenting than humans. And it's like this benefit to medicine um, that outweighs the animal suffering. And we'll get into why, you know, some of the other reasons why that's not... Necessarily so true, but I was thinking, you know, I I could hear people making that argument. I could hear people I know making that kind of argument, you know, here too. Yeah. Then we kind of get into the part I really liked was about the anti-vivisection movement, and you know what I thought was so great and just so interesting about the timing of all this is, first of all, just like how many women were responsible for this, and that it's all sort of tying into like the early like feminism movement, the suffragist, you know, right to vote kind of movement, like the timing of all of that seems kind of very intertwined. And that was very interesting to me.
0: The history is very interesting. And um, the argument, whether to use animals, the argument to use animals has actually not changed very much in 200 years. So (laughs) the argument, the argument that, that you used way back then that a human life Is far more valuable than an animal life. It's still the same argument we're using in 2022. That was being used in 1822. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the same exact, like if you have two opposite sides arguing for or against animal testing, it's the same argument still.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, when you put it into that perspective. Yeah. I thought it was interesting too about Queen Victoria. Because I, I was sort of aware that she's kind of the person who almost sort of made it popular to keep dogs more as pets. And so I didn't know that about her, but she was somebody who was outspoken about using uh, animals in testing. But even though she was the queen, it doesn't sound like she got very far with ending it.
0: Yeah, you would have thought that she would have. Yeah. But the, at that time, the medical, the medical industry or the, the medical field was growing. So much, and they had so much support that there was there wasn't much that she alone could do. Yeah, I was fascinated by that.
1: And then the other name that I I got was Francis Cobb. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you okay. are. Um, and so she was born in Dublin, and she first learned of animal experimentation when she was traveling through Europe. And she's actually responsible for creating the world's first organization against the dissection. So I thought that was just fascinating, again, that it's a woman who's responsible for this. And so while all this is going on, then over in the US, we have Henry Berg, who is founding the ASPCA, right? And then we also have, it's called the Women's Branch of the Pennsylvania SPCA, which actually I happen to know is still in existence now known as the Women's Humane Society in Philadelphia area. And uh, that they were so inspired by Francis Cobb in Europe that they went on to start the American Anti-Vivisection Society, which still exists today. So
0: the, all this kind of girl power all kind of going on around the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And that was, um, these are very brave women, if you think about it. Absolutely. Speaking out against a very powerful group back then, which was a medical, medical group.
1: Which is all men, of course, at that time. Yeah, which were all men. Yep. And so it sounds like in the early 1900s, there was finally some increased scrutiny on the section. And that leads us to the 1909 New York Times article. Oh boy, do I have a lot to say about this one. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, ha- yeah, I have to tell you, I was hearing this in my head. Like it was that deep booming voice that from the movie trailers where it's like, women pushed to the verge of insanity with their preposterous love of pet animals. <laughs> Zoophile psychosis. Like, I just kept hearing it that way. <laughs> I mean, that these were actually words written in the New York Times saying that, you know, that there's these lazy women who care nothing for human suffering and they only care about animals. And I just can't tell
0: you how much my blood pressure was rising reading that. <laughs> When I came across that article, I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, I can't even believe something. First of all, somebody would think this, and then that the New York Times would publish it, calling women perverts for thinking that, for loving animals so much that we, that we thought that the animal testing was cruel. Yeah. That just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was just making me think. So they, they called it zoophile psychosis and that this was considered like a mental illness, they were, were naming this. And it just got me onto this whole phenomenon, sometimes in connection with the medical field, about how, you know, like women are hysterical and they're crazy. And if you, you know, show emotion, you know, you know, they they're invalidating any sort of expression of emotion that you you might have. And and I've had, you know, I was just thinking of like my own experiences in the medical field where I don't, didn't feel like I was being listened to or taken seriously about, you know, concerns I had, or, you know, it was all in my head or, you know, um, I don't know where that whole sort of patronizing, condescending, uh, you know, thing comes from. And and that we're we're still dealing with it, in, you know, in some respects today in some ways. and And quite frankly, that there is kind of like you even had, had alluded to it before that there's like all these crazy animal welfare women and you know yeah. uh, you know these activists and and uh you know like I I'm always very careful about not wanting to use the word activist and using the word advocate instead because I feel like it has you know the connotation and has that kind of like crazy woman, you know,
0: sort of connotation to it. And I think sometimes like science or medical or ex- research, I think it's not like you have to keep emotion out of it, I think, and so then, emotion really shouldn't play a role in your decision making at all. But I don't, I don't agree with that myself. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't either.
1: And then the other thing I, I caught my attention was even up until nineteen sixty six. There was members of Congress who were quoting this zoophile psychosis term and and referencing this uh, mental illness of, of of women and you know, and it's like nineteen sixty six was not that long ago. <laughs> That's not that long ago. It was slightly before my lifetime, but not much. <laughs> that brings us up to just some other things that were kinda happening in the first, you know, half of the nineteen hundreds. And
0: do you wanna tell us about the story of Pepper? I think it was like 1965 something like that. Um, Pepper the Dalmatian lived on a farm with the family. And one day they, they let Pepper out to take a walk around the house like she normally did every evening. And they opened the door and Pepper was gone. And Pepper was a very loyal family dog. So that was not like her. And... They searched everywhere. They put flyers. They asked They drove around the neighborhood searching for her. And then someone said they saw somebody loading Pepper into a pickup truck. And I think it took, I don't know how many months. It took many, many months to track down what happened to Pepper. But she was actually stolen to be used in a research laboratory for a cardiac experiment where they implanted a pacemaker. And the experiment went bad, and Pepper died. So Pepper was stolen for cardiac research back then. That's just horrifying for me to think about that yeah. that, that, that ever happened. Yeah, yeah. It, it just all of
1: this is just so shocking to like my senses, my sense of the world, you know. And then you know, you're even mentioning about Russia when we hear about the space race and and things, you know that. Uh, Russia was sending a dog into space and, you know, and I think there was even like monkeys that had been sent into space also. And it's like, and again, in school, we're not talking about, well, what happened to these animals? You know, um, they just, uh, you know, kind of gloss over that part.
0: Cause that's also traumatizing. I mean, L- Leika was a stray dog off the streets and they chose her because she was very small and she was very um, quiet And they know that she would behave for the testing because they had to test her and all for her takeoff into orbit. And they, you know, they implanted her with devices, and she couldn't move. She was strapped in, and yeah, you don't really hear about that about that part. Yeah.
1: Like I think when you're a kid, you're imagining like the Jetsons and the dogs, you know, in this helmet, like floating around or something, you know. And that
0: she came, and that she came back, and she was a hero, but right, yeah. no, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then,
1: then we get into 1966, and again, this was another strange connection to Maryland, where there was an animal dealer uh, who was raided, and it revealed this sort of dirty and secret world of dog dealing for the research industry. And there was a, a Life Magazine expose um, with, I'm sure, terrible photos that accompanied it. And it there was such a public outcry from this Life Magazine article that it made Congress take action and President Lyndon Johnson actually signed the Laboratory Animals Welfare Act. So finally, we kind of get into like more modern times of people paying attention and being outraged that these things are happening.
0: On the other hand... It uh, it opened up this, now that you couldn't steal dogs for research, let's just say, but they were needing dogs for research on a much larger scale. And so that's, you would have thought that that would have been good for dogs, that Animal Welfare Act, but actually it just kind of perpetuated the use of dogs on an even larger scale. Because it created the breeding facilities? Yes. Okay. Yep. Because- dogs were still needed and they were needed more than ever and they needed to get dogs from someplace in large quantities and so then that's when the large scale breeding facilities became a thing
1: okay and so I, I I read about the fact that you know these the locations of these facilities aren't publicized which to me always means nothing good's happening there and you know the that these are called Class A dealers and that they actually have to be licensed and inspected by the USDA, but like this is all still kind of allowed to go on.
0: <laughs> it is, and um, there's a, a a very recent case actually. I'm not sure if you heard about it. It's um, it's against a huge factory factory farm of dogs called Envigo. It's a Virginia breeding facility, and they have this just happened a couple months ago. Five thousand beagle puppies in there, and. One veterinarian, oh my and God. the um, U.S. Department of Agriculture cited them for thirty-nine welfare violations. A lot of, you know, deaths and puppies, and not enough staff to take care of them, and just awful violations. Delicious. So, yeah. So they're a five hundred and forty-five million-dollar company, and they are not making animal welfare a priority. And so, there's five state bills for Virginia right now to try to get that company, the animal welfare better for these, these beagles and that it's basically a factory farm for beagles is what it is.
1: Do you want to tell us a little bit about why it seems to be beagles
0: that are used for this? Beagles are used because of their size, because they're small, but also mostly because of their temperament. Having had three beagles now, I know the beagles can let you do almost anything to them. They're just so forgiving and kind. They won't bite. They can fit in small cages and then they're ni- they're nice dogs. I guess the good news that we can
1: share is that the use of dogs in laboratories has actually decreased 70% since its peak in 1979. But globally there's still 207,000 Procedures annually involving dogs. Now that's globally, and that China and the U.S. are are the top countries that you know are are doing the, doing the most uh, procedures on on dogs in, in research, and that the dog is the most commonly used mammal. And I actually learned from your book that rats weren't commonly used in research until the early nineteen hundreds, so it's only been like a hundred years, but yet you know it's like you think of that term lab rat like you know we use that term all the time and um but that's you know only been been around for like a hundred years when dogs have been used much longer for than far that. longer yeah. yeah and so in the u s a there are three hundred and thirty research facilities currently using dogs in research. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that the top five of the of the the top five that are using the most animals, two of them are actually universities. And I, I guess I found that really interesting because again, I guess you would think that the connotation would be that like, I don't know, students wouldn't want to be involved in something like this or or something, but but that
0: that was a little bit surprising to me. I don't think sometimes students even know it's happening. Oh. Or if there is a research lab on campus they don't know what's involved okay. okay that's that's my own my best guess i i don't know right and
1: i was actually thinking like that was actually making me think you know, I've I've probably seen every episode of the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> I, uh, I had a medical issue several years ago that had me at home for quite a while and I had nothing much to do. And this was always on on reruns. So I I've seen like every episode and and it always bothered me that they would make references to Amy doing research on monkeys and sometimes I think they even would show it and it was kind of this joke and sometimes she was saying these terrible things that they were like smoking or you know d- things like this and and I'm like why are we making a joke out of this like that always bothered me and always surprised me too and then they got the laugh track in the background and you know
0: yeah totally agree I it's um to make a joke of it is yeah, because you don't unless you see what goes on behind the scenes, you wouldn't make a joke about that.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely not. And yeah, that that just when you when it mentioned universities, that was something that just popped yeah. into into my mind. And so when we talk about these large institutions, whether it's universities or or private research companies, they're getting their these dogs from these like factory farm breeding facilities that you're talking about. And so that's where they're, so it's not like, it's not like a a typical citizen would be able to go and get one of these dogs. These are like purpose bred to sell to these kinds of facilities. Is that
0: right? Definitely. And you're a regular citizen wouldn't even be allowed anywhere near these breeding facilities. You know, everything's behind gates. Everything is, um, Everything is very secretive, and it's very hidden. And it's they make it that way because these companies they don't want us to know that dogs are being used for this. It's purposefully kept from us. And I think um, I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but you know we we citizens of the United States our tax dollars pay for a lot of the of this research on dogs because those universities you're talking about they get government grants right. and those government grants come from our tax dollars. tax dollars and so it's just this big circle you know of money you know has a lot to do with money yeah so yeah. it seems like it's primarily
1: primarily the pharmaceutical industry right that's responsible for a lot of this and that there's like billions of dollars you know it's like at stake. Yeah.
0: Dogs are used mainly for toxicity testing, for human drugs, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, like agrochemicals, and also medical devices. And one of the things, the huge things
1: that I learned from your book, and one of the huge reasons of why none of this makes any sense, is that dogs are not a good model for humans all the time in these testings. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind, right, is like, well, I can eat a chocolate bar, but I'm going to panic if one of my dogs eats a chocolate bar. So clearly something's different here.
0: (laughs) Totally. In fact, one of the scientists, Dr. Bailey, that I interviewed, that's like, you know, if people have a hard time understanding, just talk about chocolate chocolate can be deadly for dogs. It's totally fine for humans. And then there's so many other things too. Grapes, onions, or what, you know, the list goes on of what happens. Tylenol. Tylenol. Yeah. No matter how you look at it, a a dog is not a human. And you had even
1: talked about like in uh, Portugal, that there had been a drug trial where the drug was successfully tested on dogs. And then when they went and used it on people, it actually ended up killing people, (laughs) but it had been successful with the dogs because again, what works on
0: humans and dogs don't, doesn't translate back and forth all the time. Right. And they oftentimes they test these drugs hundreds of times higher in doses than they would ever give a human person. And even then sometimes still it might pass a dog a dog test but when it goes to human clinical trials where they test the drug on humans it won't it won't pass it'll be toxic for people so there's something very different yeah like it just begs the question of like what are
1: we doing we're spending all this money and we're justifying, you know, the vivisectionists are justifying, oh, we have to test on animals, you know, but it's not even like a good. Dust. <laughs> like, so what are we doing here? <laughs> so, so even if you think like, oh, we do have to sometimes test on animals, you know, to advance science, we're not advancing science
0: because this isn't good science. So, what are we doing? Yeah, one of the somebody else I interviewed for my book had a statement that stuck out to me. That was historical use doesn't justify continued use. So, just because we did something a hundred years ago. It doesn't mean that that is valid anymore today.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things we used to do 100 years ago <laughs> that we don't do today. <laughs> and we've come so far in, in you know, in automobiles or, you know, and, and yet we're still arguing for, for this. So can you explain to us about the testing process and why? So it's my understanding, right, there has to be like um, – a mammal test and a non-mammal test, and so that's why, um, and that and that that's actually like a guideline
0: or like a, a law. Or can you explain that? Yes, the Food and Drug Administration requires drugs to be tested in a rodent and a non-rodent species before it goes on to human clinical trials, and so. It'll be tested on mice, and then your non-rodent species are typically dogs or primates. And then if it passes that, then it would go on to be tested in people, but then that's where over 90% of drugs that, are, that pass animal tests fail in the human clinical trials. Over 90%. Yeah. I mean that's
1: a mind-blowing statistic. Again, like what are we doing here? Like why are we wasting all of this time and money? Why are these research, you know, why are these pharmaceutical companies wasting all of this time and money?
0: <laughs> you know, I I often think about that too and just, you know, between you and me, if that that beagle breeding facility I was talking about before called EnVigo, if that's a 545 million dollar company, and all of a sudden we said we're not going to use dogs anymore. Their company's done. So why you would fight very hard to keep your business going.
1: And so it all comes down to money and 545 million dollars and connections to the pharmaceutical industry buys a lot of influence and lobbyists is my take on the situation anyway.
0: That's my take as well.
1: You know, I always feel so conflicted, right? Because in you know, on one hand, you have, we need certain pharmaceutical drugs to save people's lives, you know, antibiotics, or, you know, which I think are overused, but you know, they can be life-saving in some situations. And so I, I I recognize that, I guess there's sort of a balance, you know, between needing to advance research. But again, like, there's so much money at stake, I can't believe how much money is being wasted if 90% of, you know, these These drug trials are are ineffective on humans after they were found. Like that just seems like an obscene amount of money, even in an industry of obscene amounts of money.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even I, it's painful me to it's painful for me to think about dogs ever being used in research. But even I can acknowledge that they had using dogs had contributed to many medical advances in the past. But that doesn't mean that we haven't moved beyond that. And we have this amazing technology at our fingertips that can replace animals and not enough money is being invested to to make this change over. Okay and so one other
1: statistic I wanted to bring up just before we move into sort of this future technology because I loved learning about that is that we believe that there's approximately 55,000 dogs currently being used in the US in research labs. So to automatically say tomorrow, you know, oh, we can't use them anymore, that leaves a fifty-five thousand dogs that are now going to need a home. Yeah. And so that's just the scale of what we're, you know, what what we're talking about here. And and these are fifty five thousand, you know, kind of special needs dogs as you've described special the process. Special needs dogs you know, of, of of what your adoption experience was like. But as you, you talk about in the book, and this was a really exciting thing to learn about, was about that there are these future technologies coming. So do you want to tell us about those? And again, that we want to hopefully want to see more money get, be invested in these types of, of
0: things. Yes. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in this area <laughs> and um, highly recommend doing research online to get because it's very technical, biomedical technology. Do you just want to give us the broad strokes? Yeah. Yeah. um, I was actually going to give just one example of what this new technology is. And um, it's called organ on a chip. And basically, it's like a two-inch memory chip, computer memory chip, and they are able to put a human lung on there, a human heart on there, a liver, human liver, and they can actually have it mimic the function of human tissues and organs, including blood vessels. I mean, it's like you can look up organ on a chip on Google and you'll see a picture of it. And it's just super cool. And they just use human cells and they can test drugs. Let's say you need a liver drug. They could test the drug on this little computer chip using your cells. And they're gonna get a more accurate response as to what could happen if you take this drug. So that's the overview. I'm sorry to any scientists listening if I'm not if I'm not describing this very scientifically. <laughs> well, that was my understanding
1: also. Okay. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's completely fascinating to think that we've come this far. And I was just thinking, too, of like 3D printing. You know, we can do so much, you know, with these kinds of things now, too.
0: Yeah, there's, like I said, organ on a chip is one of many viable options that are currently available. It's just getting the government and pharmaceutical companies to adopt this new technology and not use... Tr- what they 've traditionally used for so long, which are dogs and other animals, that's not something that happens overnight. Even though it's cheaper, I actually, for our talk today, I found a 2019 paper that was published in Drug Discovery Today about organ on a chip, and it said that it could reduce r and d costs by as much as twenty six percent or seven hundred and six million dollars per new drug reaching the market. Wow. That it just really stuck out to me because if anybody says, oh, this technology is too expensive, we can't do it. I think time will prove that it's going it's to be cheaper in the long run and safer. So it's cheaper and more accurate. Yes. And
1: yet we're not doing it because we're just doing what we've always done. Yeah.
0: So I just, as, I'm speaking as a citizen and a dog lover more than a scientist. But as a taxpayer and a citizen, I gladly have my taxes go to pay for something like this that would really advance human health, that I know would advance human health, and be more ethical at the same time. Right.
1: But it's like a paradigm shift, right? And it's it, like you said, it's changing. You know, laws. It's changing the requirements of the FDA, and these are not things that typically move in any sort of efficient manner. And unless there's a really good reason to do so. Right. Yeah, I'm always somebody who's not a big fan of like, well, that's how we've always done it.
0: (laughs) No, me neither.
1: So we've talked about sort of the past, the present, the future. And then we get into section two of your book about rehoming the dogs. And one thing I thought was very interesting is that there has been some public pressure with federal agencies and with many individual states that have implemented laws like the Beagle Freedom Bill to mandate that research facilities note the ones that are taking public tax funds, that they must rehome the healthy animals once they are retired from their testing process. And so I actually saw that Maryland, my state, uh, there's actually a, a photo in the book of our governor, uh, Governor Hogan, who was signing the the Beagle Freedom Bill uh, into law a couple of years ago here in Maryland. And and so that's exciting news to see that, but it does also stand out to me that you know there's no requirement for these private you know companies to um, to to do this. You're right. Um, it's only you know institutions or something that are taking federal money.
0: Yeah,
1: and in- or, or, or or state tax money, I guess too.
0: Yeah. In fact, I don't. Th- there's aren't any. There isn't any data that I'm aware of that even shows like how many healthy dogs are adopted out versus being euthanized, there isn't anybody tracking that information.
1: And there's no, yeah, there's no requirement to do so, and, and companies right. aren't going to turn that over. Yeah,
0: No. I guess there is then,
1: uh, and I, I don't know if you listed them out in the book, but I guess people can find out if their state has this kind of law, and if not, they can get involved in trying to get something
0: like that enacted. There's a ton that people can do to help. And before we end our conversation today, I have a list of things. I was going to give, but I think 11 states have passed. I think 11 states and counting okay. have passed that Beagle Freedom Bill. And so I know b- because
1: of the different challenges that we talked about and, and your own experiences in adopting a dog, there is the question like, do the former laboratory dogs make suitable family pets? And you actually give a, a list That I just thought was really powerful to think about, that until a research dog's rescue day, he or she may never have lived outside of a small cage, been outdoors, touched grass or dirt, seen the sky or the sun, eaten out of a bowl, been offered a dog treat, had a good experience with a human, played with a toy, been touched with love and kindness, heard common household sounds like television, microwave, may never have walked through a doorway been in a vehicle, walked up and down stairs, been potty trained, walked on a leash, or slept on anything but a hard surface. And I was like, wow, that is quite a list of things to think about. But the overall news is that once you get past that kind of initial adjustment period, it does seem like the dogs will settle in and
0: and live a happy life. It's one of the most gratifying things I've ever done in my whole life is to adopt a former research beagle. And I wish I could tell you exactly why. Um, maybe it's because somehow I'm, even though I didn't do anything to them, I'm trying to make amends for what people did because it was all for my supposed benefit, my health or my the chemicals I, or that are around me to make me safe or something. I, I don't know. Why it's so gratifying, but everybody that you talk to that has adopted a former research dog, their whole lives have just changed for the better, kind of fascinating and wonderful
1: and I loved reading I loved reading those stories in your book and and I noticed you said that you took a summer to interview these families, and I was like, well, that must have just been the best summer ever. <laughs> Do you have any favorite stories other than marty
0: <laughs> i I love little bits of all of them Yeah, just because there's special moments in each story. Just like, uh, one of the beagles I named, I think his name was Doug loves eggs. Like, like he'll do anything for eggs, scrambled eggs, sunny side over eggs. It doesn't matter. he'd go crazy. And so just little things like that, because you know that they never had, it's like those little teeny joys, you know, that they never had and then when they have those little joys in their their new life it's like extra extra special you know what i mean
1: i i mean just you know i think anybody who has had the experience of adopting a, a dog and um You know, last night I spent about 20 minutes with my cell phone trying to video my dog Penny because she likes to get in the dog bed when we watch TV or something at night. And she has this very funny way of like scooting around and getting herself comfortable, (laughs) you know, and and it was I was trying to videotape it. But then anytime I would point my phone at her, she would kind of like stop (laughs) And, and just kind of lay down. And, you know, and I was just, you know, I'm just thinking like I am so grateful that I can provide this home where you know it's like she sleeps on the sofa in the afternoon and she sleeps in the dog bed in the evening and she sleeps in the bed behind me when I'm doing my interviews and she sleeps in our bed at night and you know our whole house is just set up for you know the care and comfort of these dogs basically yeah mine too (laughs) and and you know our guy our guy Nino I mean he is obsessed with his ball and just, you know, being able to watch the joy when he's running after the ball. And, and, you know, it's just so gratifying to give them those moments. It is. Their joy is our joy. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing I, I noticed is that uh, in your your happy endings uh, section, that there's even international dogs, so it's not just in the U.S. Like you,
0: you, actually talk to to people in other countries. I got to interview a couple of people from the U.K. and then also Italy, but it's we're all connected in this. Everyone who loves dogs, no matter what country you're you're from, you care about this issue. We all are connected, in how we feel about rescuing them. Yeah, unity. <laughs> I always
1: say we have more in common than you know we think we do.
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: And I also loved the stories of the former research dogs who, you know, go on to sort of become like the spokes dogs for this movement. Whether it's, you know, with Beagle Freedom Project, with the Kindness Ranch Sanctuary and giving a a face to this and and going out and being able to be in an environment, right? Like around people and and kind of do the meet and greets and and things like that. And that was very, very exciting to see also.
0: Yeah, it's, to me, it's, it's one thing to like read about, oh, beagles are used in research experiments. And it's a whole other thing to actually meet a beagle that was used in research experiments in person, and look them in the eyes, and then you see them as a, a living being versus just a statistic on a piece of paper. Right. It's totally will change your outlook. It just will because they're right in front of you, and you can't you can't ignore that.
1: As a pit bull owner, I also felt like a special, you know, like little kinship with that because with the stigma sometimes around pit bulls. It always feels good. You know, we try to have like breed ambassador dogs and, you know, let people have like a positive experience. And yeah, it's just like that. I will say Nino, unfortunately is not the best breed ambassador dog. He doesn't enjoy other people, (laughs) but Penny is. And and our, our, our old girls that, that have passed away now, they were, they were our breed ambassador dogs. And, And so, uh, so I can appreciate how special it is. And, and as an owner, you know, it's a special experience for you to kind of be able to, you know, to see that, you know, that light go on in somebody else's eyes and to make that, you know, connection and that understanding and and to, you know, help fulfill your sort of purpose in, in all this. And, you know, it's expe- a special experience for everyone. It is. And so now I want to make sure we talk about what can we do? What can we individual people dog owners, dog lovers, what can we do to to try to help change this?
0: Probably the easiest thing to do right away, you could start that tonight if you wanted to, would be um, to purchase cruelty-free products for your household. Right. So that would include your makeup, your shampoo, your the dish soap you use to wash your dishes. There's plenty of options out there. You just look for... Um, I usually buy products with a Leaping Bunny logo right. on it. If you look up Leaping Bunny on Google, you'll be able to learn more about that program, but they're the strictest.
1: And there's an app, right? We can get an app right on our
0: phone. Yeah, there is.
1: And we'll make sure to have links to all these things that you're talking about in the show notes. Oh, so great, everybody that's can go perfect. Right
0: yeah, right, that's perfect. The second thing that's really easy to do is to support organizations that are working to end experiments on animals. Beagle Freedom Project. I'll just name them because there's just a few. There's Beagle Freedom Project, the Humane Society of the United States, Cruelty Free International, Humane Society International, PETA, and then there's a lot more as well. And I, you could just very easily join their social media pages. That's what I've done. And once you join their Facebook page, for instance, you'll get action alerts. And so they'll be like, hey, today, if you live in Virginia, we need you to contact your senators. So it's super easy and it's a really great way to stay up on what's happening and what you could do. So that leads me to my third point, which is to write an email to your federal representatives or senators. Okay. So because this is an issue, it's not so much a state issue as it is, the law is that you need to test drugs and products on dogs. That's the law. That's a federal law. So you need to contact your federal legislator.
1: Okay. So at the state level, we can contact them about the Beagle Freedom Bills. Yeah. And then on the federal level, we want to contact them about changing the testing requirements of the FDA.
0: Yeah, just say, I'm a taxpayer. I really care about dogs. I know that there's all new technology. I... Whatever you want to say, it's so easy to send an email.
1: And again, being here in Maryland, we're the home of the National Institutes of Health that is doing a lot of, of this research with the federal money.
0: Yeah. And so basically, whatever you can do to become an advocate for these dogs, honestly, the, the sky's the limit. You could start your own Facebook group. Start educating your friends and family. You can protest outside a university that you know does dog research. Peaceful protest is something we should be able to do if we don't agree with something. A lot of protesting is going on right now in the UK about dog testing. Oh, okay. If you feel like doing that, do that. Start a student club on campus and say... We don't support research on this campus with dogs. I just feel like this is not a time to be shy or quiet about the issue because the dogs really need our help. And public opinion here is going to be huge. And it's going to need our collective voice. And it doesn't really matter how you share that voice. Honestly, every little bit counts. Right. And the more, the more pressure comes from us, our opinions matter. They do. The more
1: things will change. And and you can share this podcast episode with your friends and family to help educate them about this issue, too. Absolutely. Well, this is a wonderful list. I'm, I'm actually going to make sure we transcribe the whole list and have links to everything that we can because I want this to be super easy for everybody to to take some kind of action. And a lot of it you can do right from your phone, too.
0: So what does the future hold, Ellie? Actually, I was pretty excited to tell you this, but you inspired me to start my own podcast. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, um, it's not ready yet. It's a work in progress, but it's called Research Dogs Exposed. Wow! And I'm going to continue my interviewing. That's with wonderful. Scientists, young scientists working on what they're working on, animal advocates. I didn't want to just stop with my book there's still so many people that are doing really awesome things for dogs in research labs and um, their voice needs to be heard. And so thank you because you inspired me to create my own podcast. (laughs) That's the future.
1: (laughs) I'm a a little choked up right now. (laughs) I'm very excited to hear that, and I think that's wonderful. And just there's so many just different, like you said, with all these new technologies, and all, there's so many things that that you could talk about. I'm so excited. Well, you're gonna have to definitely let us know when it's ready, and we'll be sharing about it. And I'm so excited for you. I'm a little terrified because, like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, I get yet. It. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going for it anyway. That's amazing! Oh my gosh! Oh, that's so exciting. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And Ellie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing about all of this with us for your book. Again, we'll have links to everything in the show notes for everyone. And we're really excited to see where the future can take this because there's a lot of work that needs to get done, but but you've done you've laid so much of the groundwork that that, that this is really impressive. And
0: things are moving in the right direction.
1: Yes. That's yes. the
0: feeling I get.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Ellie, thank you so much. Thank you so much.
1: I'm so grateful to Ellie for sharing so much of her time and her research and her thoughts with us. I did a quick check-in with Ellie this week right before recording this part of the podcast to see how her podcast was coming. That was such an exciting announcement for me to get during our interview. I had no idea that, that she was going to share that. So her plan is still to release it by June and she said the podcast is coming along great, and she already has two guests booked for interviews. So as soon as I hear about Ellie's podcast coming out, I will make sure to tell you. I will share it all over social media. That's very exciting, and I, I really look forward to to listening to all the experts. I'll also have a link in the show notes to where you can purchase Ellie's book. She really does have some just phenomenal seminal scientific experts who took part in her book interviews, and I would love the opportunity to hear more from them. So this is really exciting. There's tons of links and tons of information for you in the show notes. So please click that link in your app or wherever you're listening to make sure that you see all the great resources that Ellie had to share. One of the most important things you can do right now is to go to your app store on your phone and download that Leaping Bunny cruelty-free shopping app. When I did this a couple months ago, I actually realized that there were some products I needed to change in my life because I didn't want to support companies that are doing research testing. I've always been a huge believer in voting with our dollars because I do believe that consumers can inspire change in the world by what products they buy and also don't buy. And I recognize in some ways it's probably a privilege of mine to be able to do that and to be able to make the decision that I'm going to spend more to purchase something that's organic. I'm going to spend more to get my meat from Grandview Farm. I believe in spending my money with brands whose practices align with my values and with the issues that are important to me, such as the treatment of animals. I believe that every time you buy or don't buy a product, you're sending a signal as to what's important to you. So I'm willing and able to buy a new face creams so that I can make sure that I'm not supporting a company that's doing laboratory research testing on animals. So if you download the app on your phone and you want to take a screenshot, you can always tag me in your Instagram stories or on Facebook, and I'll make sure to share those. It'd be a great and easy way to share with our friends and families and spread the word on social media. Before we sign off, I did want to give one other quick update and let you know that Nino's car safety harness did arrive. If you remember from episode 41, I spoke with Pooinda Swanpon, Uh, Also known as P from Dogs Ride Certified, and she was sharing about how to find certified car safety belts for your pets because not all of the products on the market have actually passed the crash testing process. So I had gone ahead and purchased a harness for Nino, and then just this past week. P met up with my dog Penny and I so that we could get Penny properly fitted for a harness. Penny is about a 50, 55 pound pit bull and... She just opened the door to the room while I'm recording this. <laughs> that makes me laugh. I'm even going to leave that part in. Um, so, Penny and I met up with P and got Penny fitted for a medium harness. Penny's always kind of an in between size of medium and large, and I'm never quite sure. But in this case, we went down with the medium so that we can make sure she had a snug fit. P gave me a little lesson, and I took some video about how to get Penny's harness properly fitted into my car. And then we did a little test ride with her. So I'll be sharing some photos and video of that on social media as well. So make sure you're following at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores on Instagram and Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook. I'll also be sharing some photos from Ellie so you can see her rescued laboratory beagles, Marty and Eddie. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Aaron Scott. Sending you hugs and belly rubs.
0: The Believe in Dog podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.